Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Uprising Uncut. This is your unofficial host of the unofficial broadcast slash podcast, Sonali Kolhatkar. It is October 8th, 2015, and I skipped last week's podcast. And I'm very sorry about that um, for my legions of loyal listeners. Um, About three dozen or so, I would imagine. But uh, I had a a school event to go to. My kids go to a a school in Pasadena and there was a mandatory parents night that uh, my husband and I had to attend. So we asked a friend to babysit and uh, it took all evening. And my days are so packed tightly they're so scheduled that just skipping a day I I couldn't make up for it the next day well I guess I could have spent my Friday evening recording a podcast but I figured I would relax instead so sorry about that Um, but uh, it was definitely something I had to do you know when you have uh, kids and their school comes in the way of whatever, you know, work or play, etc. You got to do that. And I got just a a side note before I get into some of the uh, thoughts that I've been having on the political issues of our day and our news. Uh, Just an aside on on the school that um, my kids go to. um, I admit that I send my children to a private school. Definitely not something I'm proud of given my political leanings against privatization of schools and very much in favor of strong and well-funded public schools. However, it comes down to two things, and that is that I do not believe in homework at all, and I do not believe in testing at all. I just am a huge, huge, huge proponent of zero homework and zero testing. I really very strongly believe that all instruction and all learning should be in the classroom and all of the busy work that kids get sent home with, um, you know, homework, etc., is a waste of their time, is a waste of parental time. And testing is pretty much the same thing. So I I have a school that my kids go to that has neither testing nor homework. Uh, It's not one of these sort of newfangled... um, alternative schools either although I'm sure some people would consider it alternative it's a it's a Montessori school and I'm a very very strong supporter of Montessori education I've been for a very long time and it's something that I I was actually um, in, in my background my grandmother was a Montessori teacher in India and she actually knew Maria Montessori which is a big deal in Montessori circles Maria Montessori being the uh, the Italian physician I believe she was who Um, came up with what she thought was the best method of education. And it wasn't just based on her thoughts or her theory. Um, It was based on her empirical observations of how children learn. And she, you know, spent years observing the ways in which children teach themselves things, the ways in which they learn to be people, and designed an educational method, a pedagogy that was optimal to children's learning. It's a hundred-year-old um, pedagogy, and the you know it's it's absolutely powerful. There have been studies showing how well it works, and how children are really you know quite happy. It it makes best use of 
their uh, powerful and very hungry brains at that age. Um, and it's just so optimal for learning. And so there's no homework or testing in Montessori. Um, and so I sent my kids to Montessori. Um, and, you know, I, uh, my husband and I might actually be able to afford uh, vacations if we didn't send our kids to private school. It definitely costs money, although this particular school that we send our kids to is on the low end, apparently, the low end of private school fees. Um, So for as long as we can afford it, we'll continue to send our children there while urging and lobbying for and as much as we can for public schools to quit subjecting children to ridiculous testing um, that is meaningless, as well as um, homework. So there's my rant against testing and homework and my um, public admission that I send my kids to private school. (laughs) On to the news of the day. Uh, This week was a very important week in international news. It, It was the... Uh, 14th anniversary of the U.S. war in Afghanistan. And just a few days before that grim anniversary, the United States spent uh, 30 minutes, more than 30 minutes, bombing, bombarding a hospital in the northern Afghan province of Kunduz on Saturday morning because their corrupt Afghan allies had told them that they had been fired from that hospital and that it was in fact a Taliban stronghold. Turned out that the hospital was run by Medicine Sans Frontier, Doctors Without Borders, a Nobel Prize winning institution that has spent decades in Afghanistan. It's really a very important organization. Uh, and it was the only location where ordinary people, ordinary Afghan women, men and children were able to get health care in the area. So there were, you know, the MSF is livid. The, the organization is extremely angry. They've been speaking out and about it. I've never actually heard an aid agency um, be so politically on point and, you know, ferociously angry about what was done to it. And, and it's no surprise, 22 people killed in that bombardment of that. Ten were uh, patients, three of those patients' children. Um, and so 12 aid workers killed by by the United States. Uh, Doctors Without Borders, and I hadn't seen this covered very much in the media, but uh, MSF has been, you know, has spent decades in Afghanistan. And just a few years into the US war in 2004, they left Afghanistan because five of their workers, five aid workers had been mysteriously killed. They called for an investigation, an independent investigation, and and nobody ever, you know, knew officially, at least, who had killed the aid workers. But it was pretty clear that it was in response to U.S. and NATO forces blurring the lines between aid workers and soldiers because uh, the U.S. and NATO decided that it would be a useful thing for soldiers to do things like build schools and hospitals to, quote, win over hearts and minds. And in doing so, what they did was they blurred the very important lines that are meant to exist between aid work and military work. Uh, It's absolutely imperative that aid workers never get caught up in political sides so that they can remain neutral, so that they can save lives in times of war and don't become political pawns. But because of the US and NATO's um, 
blurring of those distinctions, um, aid workers had begun to be killed in increasing numbers. Um, starting in about 2004, five workers of Doctors Without Borders killed at that time. And after 25 years, the organization pulled out of Afghanistan. Um, they were very upset. They were very angry, and understandably so. And then about five years later, they came back in 2009. They restarted their operations in Afghanistan because the need is so great. I mean, Afghanistan is still one of the poorest countries in the world. Um, and by the way, in case you may not be familiar, it's it's a country that's very close to my heart. I'm not Afghan, although some people assume that I am because I'm so interested in it. Um, but I've been working very closely with Afghan women, um, one particular group in particular, one particular group um, of Afghan women called Rawa, the Revolutionary Association of the Women of Afghanistan. And I've actually worked with them for more than 15 years and um, before even the September 11th attacks. And so um, I run a nonprofit called Afghan Women's Mission um, that helps to raise money for the projects that Rawa does um, we're not as active now sadly as, as we used to be for various reasons but um, so it's a country that that I've just written about for years it was it was really what I got my start in in my political writing career and even journalist journalism career um, because it was the speaking that I did around Afghanistan that first got me noticed by local activists in in Los Angeles when I was approached to um, host a show on KPFK. So um, I certainly feel very close to that that country and its political issues. And actually in 2005, so it would have been 10 years ago this year, in fact, almost 10 years ago to the month, I be believe it was, I can't remember now if it was spring or fall when, when my husband and I went to Afghanistan, but it was 2005, um, might have been spring. And uh, we took a trip there because we wanted to write a book uh, about what was happening in Afghanistan, what U.S. policy, what U.S. occupation looked like. So we actually went there. I spent several weeks there. And it was, you know, it was very difficult. It's a difficult country to be in, especially for people who aren't used to it. And I'm from India. I, I have seen grinding poverty. Um, but the kind of poverty that exists in Afghanistan shocked even me. It was just a very intense, very intense experience. And then a year later, our book was published. So this is a country that's really close to my heart. And every year around this time, when the anniversary of that war comes around, I remember what it felt like when the bombs first began dropping on Afghanistan. We were all very scared. We knew it was going to happen right after September 11th. As soon as talk of Osama bin Laden and the Taliban and Al-Qaeda started happening, we knew the bombs would begin falling um, on Afghanistan sooner or later. And, and you know, less than a month after the 9-11 attacks, the bombs started falling. And, um, and we all knew those of us who who knew what was happening on the ground in Afghanistan, but also who knew the history of U.S. wars, didn't have even the slightest bit of optimism that the U.S. war would actually solve anything, either make Americans safer or make Afghans safer. We all just knew this was a horrific idea. But of course, the country was reeling from the September 11th attacks and there was this sense of revenge in the air and people really naively believed that we were going to go and you know take out those terrorists that destroyed 
American prestige on 9-11 and, uh, and then have this nice clean war and walk away patting ourselves on the back. And it, that is, you know, that is obviously not what has happened. And, and it was utterly predictable. It came as a surprise to none of us who were involved in this work 14 years ago. And the tragedy that has continued to unfold is a result of this utterly, predictably failed war. So I, I wrote my um, latest column in Telesur English on the US anniversary, uh, uh, the 14th anniversary of the US war in Afghanistan. A couple of weeks ago, I had written a Truth Day article about it as well. Um, but um, this was an updated piece based on the uh, Doctors Without Borders hospital attack. So check it out, uh, Telesur English. Um, you can just Google Telesur English and under opinion, uh, you'll find my columns alongside the columns of many others. So, so that's, that's what happened in world news in Afghanistan this week. Um, Syria, lots of international news. Syria is um, also big, big news and I've been following that. The, um, the Russian forces <laughs> supposedly in Syria now and it's so interesting. In so many ways, Russia reminds me of Afghanistan because there are so many actors involved, and yet the main actor is the United States. Um, the government is corrupt, just like in Afghanistan, although when we first went into Afghanistan, there was no government, but the government is corrupt, and it's violent and murder murderous, which is uh, what many elements in the Afghan government are. And there's a... a, a very complex grouping of rebels on the ground, some of whom are absolutely brutal themselves, such as ISIS. Um, and the US and Russia going into this country and thinking they can bomb their way to peace is just as naive and simple-minded and destructive as the US war in Afghanistan. So yeah, so, so much happening in Syria this week reminding me of what has happened in Afghanistan. Uh, Syria, the death toll is horrific. It is comparable to the death toll in Afghanistan over 14 years. Already in Syria, something like 120,000 civilians have been killed in only four years. So the violence is just unbelievable. And um, the Russian forces getting involved alongside Assad, alongside Iran, uh, Bashar al-Assad, that is uh, the president of Syria, alongside Iran, alongside Hezbollah, forming one coalition that are supposedly targeting ISIS as well as an array of rebel groups fighting the regime. And then you have the U.S. and its coalition of Arab allies such as Saudi Arabia, etc., and Western allies such as Germany and Canada and France, and they're going after apparently just ISIS. So the U.S. is... Um, U.S.-led coalition's goal is narrower than the Bashar al-Assad-led coalition's goal. But effectively, it's consistent with his goal. So in fighting only ISIS, the U.S. has found itself on the same side as the brutal dictator of Syria. Not that fighting the brutal dictator of Syria, of course, would solve anything, because fighting doesn't solve anything, and wars don't solve anything. And if the U.S. was really interested in peace 
in Syria and justice in Syria would actually do something about Saudi Arabia and its brutality and its support of ISIS. It might actually attempt diplomacy with Russia rather than proxy war and so on and so forth. Certainly there's no easy solution, but uh, the the easy the, the least easy solution is war and we seem to jump to that any chance we get. And it's just horrific. I, I feel very sad about what's happening in Syria. It feels like it's the new front line of brutal war and violence, um, often, of course, overshadowed by uh, things that are happening in Iraq or the Ukraine, but just in the last few months, um, cover, you know, getting a little bit more attention. Um, and by the way, my latest article in Truthdig this uh, week was about Syria. Uh, it was actually a profile of this a fantastic Syrian-American hip-hop artist that I interviewed on Uprising recently. If you're in Los Angeles, you might have missed that because that was one of the banned broadcasts. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, just go to uprisingradio.org and you'll see what I mean. Um, but uh, if you were in the Bay Area or if you listen online, you might have caught the interview. And it, uh, it was this conversation I had with Omar Offendum. I'm a, a huge fan of his work, such a such a brilliant poet and artist and a very sincere guy. And, you know, this young fellow who's just done phenomenal work um, through his hip hop and um, music and his art and his poetry. And I've interviewed him several times over the years. Um, and so I just had him on recently on the show, and I, I profiled him to as a way to talk about the Syria war. So you can je- definitely check out that um, conversation on truthdig.com under columnists and check out my name and read that piece. Um, he, If you actually go to uprisingradio.org and search for his name, Omar Offendum, Offendum, by the way, is his stage name, um, you can hear him rapping uh, or just, you know, dropping a few lines of a spoken word piece near the end and then I also play one of his latest songs on Syria called Crying Shame. So it's a great song so do check that out. So that's been on my mind a lot lately. Uh, The other things that uh, have been in the news in recent days have been just this weird thing with with U.S. electoral politics and presidential politics. Is it just me or, or do we feel that the, the conservative candidates are just so much more insane this time than four years ago? Um, I'm talking, of course, about Ben Carson and Ben Carson and uh, Donald Trump's love fest, but also uh, Rupert Murdoch's love fest with Ben Carson. So this African-American neurosurgeon conservative who's running for president um, and who, you know, is just clueless. I mean, some of the one of the worst things that has come out of his mouth came out this week where he made some ludicrous comment about the victims of the shooting, the school shooting in Oregon, the Umqua Community College shooting where, you know, so many people were killed. He made some callous remark about how if he had been in the line of fire, he wouldn't have just let the shooter shoot him. I'd like to see Ben Carson in in a live action scenario of where he has a gun and he's not expecting to be shot at and what his reaction is, whether he goes running for cover or whether he somehow tries to heroically 
uh, tackle the shooter. You know, all of these gun rights um, folks, so-called gun rights folks, let's just call them gun nuts, uh, or, you know, my professional title for them is gun proliferation activists. I made that up myself. Um, you know, it's just so interesting to, to hear them make these pronouncements and proclamations about the reactions that they would have were they in a situation uh, of an active shooter, as if they live in some kind of Wild West scenario. And I think in their minds they do. I think that subconsciously they live out some fantasy of of the wild west where they sling their guns and anybody who crosses them um they can legitimately defend themselves with their guns and and they would get away with it because they're the quote-unquote good guys of course real life just doesn't work that way and you know we've seen studies that have shown that the just the sheer fact of owning a gun increases the likelihood that you will be caught up in gun violence by some ridiculous amount, like 100%, like it just goes up by like double. Um, and, you know, people who think that if they get a gun because um, they have a family and they want to keep them safe, what they don't realize is that they now have increased their chances of either killing themselves with their guns, because when you get depressed or suicidal and you happen to have a gun lying around, that impulse to kill yourself is much more fatal than if you don't have a gun lying around. Uh, and of course, the likelihood that your child will find a gun, find the gun in your house, no matter how well you try to hide it. And fatal and terrible accidents can and do occur. They occur all the time. In fact, Nicholas Crystal, um, Nicholas Kristoff, excuse me, the New York Times op-ed writer, um, briefly came under fire this week, I believe it was for, or in the last week or so, um, for making a claim that there have been more people who have been killed by guns, and that includes suicide and domestic violence, etc., than have died in all U.S. wars. And that's a huge claim, except after he made that claim, people went and corroborated him, and it turned out he was right. I don't agree with Mr. Kristoff on everything. But every now and then, you know, he, he says um, and writes um, things along the lines of, of what I agree with. And, and that was a powerful calculation to make. That was a an important statistic to uh, to drop there uh, that, you know, of course, the, the gun nuts, of course, don't care about facts, right? And that's the thing. Even though we feel when we when we encounter these insane shooting scenarios um all of us and i'm guilty of this you know dutifully trot out the studies studies show that you know gun control legislation is extremely effective at reducing death studies show that the more guns are in society the more gun death there will be it's like saying studies show that you know if you have a cat it, it will meow oh <laughs> The really obvious thing. Studies show that uh, a country like Australia cut its gun deaths dramatically by by um, by imposing strict gun controls. But the fact is that facts don't mean much to these so-called defenders of the Second Amendment. And so I really feel strongly that we should just stop trying to convince them through facts and studies enough we've done enough studies on gun violence it's really clear it's also really clear that 
most Americans don't think about gun violence till it affects them personally or somebody they know personally. And then most Americans who might, who in theory might be in favor of, you know, having guns galore, suddenly become advocates of gun control. And that says a lot about the kind of brainwashing that pro-gun propaganda and the NRA has managed to do, where we've convinced people that, you know, convinced most people that 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 the ridiculous amount of guns we have in this country, you know, more than one gun per person, by the way, more guns per capita here in the United States than in Syria, more guns per, per capita in the U.S. than any other country in the world. And so we've managed to convince the public those who are not and have not been directly impacted by gun violence, that it is somehow an American value to be pro-gun. Um, and we've just, we've got to stop with the studies and trying to convince people through studies and facts. And I think politicians need to simply be strong enough and strong-willed enough to just make it happen. You've been charged with protecting us. Just fucking protect us. The Surgeon General of the US, this awesome Indian guy whose name I can't remember now, um, has very rightfully called gun proliferation a public health issue. I mean, if the numbers of Americans dying from guns are comparable to those dying of heart disease or cancer, then it is a public health issue. That's all you need to know. And we need to just do something about it. I emailed the head of my kid's school the other day because as I was thinking about the Oregon shooter, I started freaking out. My younger son's school is um, on a, uh, a busy street with a you know big sign that, that uh, advertises the schools right there. And it's a, it's, that's the campus where the younger kids go. So ages like one and a half to about six years old. And there's several dozen, maybe like a hundred or so, so kids in, on that campus. And um, there's just one gate with a code on it. And it's a heavily foot trafficked area. And I just Every time there's a school shooting, it freaks me out. And I think, who's going to walk into that school one day and just go nuts? And I, so I emailed the head of our school and, and I asked him what emergency protocols there were in place and you know whether there was some kind of protocol for teachers and staff to take in case of an active shooter. And that is, what, what sort of a world do we live in when a parent feels frightened about you know, this has this irrational fear that a shooter, a random shooter for no apparent reason could walk in with heavily, you know, heavily armed with weapons and huge amounts of ammunition and just shoot up a bunch of kids because they were having a bad day or whatever. I mean, the fact that we live in a country where that is actually a legitimate fear, where that is actually not that irrational is very, very sad. Anyway, uh, my head of school did respond and did say that there are emergency protocols in place, but you know we can't live like this. We have to we have to fix this. We have to change this. It can't be about emergency protocols, um, or you know as the NRA would like to have their way um, arming teachers. Uh, we can't live like this. We've got to have a society where there should that fear should just be truly irrational. 
Um, anyway, so that, that is my, my uh, rant on gun control and uh, gun proliferation and domestic politics in this week. Lots and lots of other stuff happening over the, have, has happened over the last couple of weeks, but I think I am nearly out of time. By the way, I hope you like the sound quality of this week's show. I am aware that my peas have been popping a little bit. I need to get a wind guard for this new microphone that I just got, a plug-in microphone right into my computer. So I hope this sounds a little bit better than the built-in microphone of my computer. Technology is so cool. It actually allows me to hang out in my armchair in my bedroom and talk to the world and um, and not sound half bad doing it. So I, uh, I will try to get a wind guard very soon so that my peas don't pop. But um, unless you're a radio person, you probably don't care or notice um, or maybe you do, and um, since you've grown accustomed po- possibly to um, to NPR or whatever you might listen to, KPFK, etc. Oh, and by the way, an update on KPFK. In, this, in the last few minutes of this podcast, I got written up for the first time in 13 years by my boss. Isn't that nice? I got written up for what? Apparently, violating some unspecified, making some unspecified violation of our so-called dirty laundry policy. Yes, the beacon of free speech at KPF that, that KPFK claims it is um, actually tries to punish its staff for expressing free speech. And I say tries to because um, the boss had to backtrack on the writing, on, on the written warning um, after the union uh, made a, a point to, uh, to respond. So because, of course, there was nothing there. Um, so that's that. That's my that's my revelation about the craziness, the ongoing insanity at Pacifica KPFK, my uh, workplace for the last 13 years. So for those of you who might have been curious about the latest on that. Oh, and so by the way, now I am on only two days a week, every week. It used to be that I was on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, one week, Monday, Tuesday, the next week, and so on. But because of the punishment for the writing up, um, let me start over. The punishment for being written up was to be taken off every other Wednesday. Now, even though the um, warning has been rescinded, the punishment apparently still stands. So there you have it. Free speech radio that upholds, at least in principle, or I should say only in principle and theory, the rights of working people and organized labor. And in practice, well, it's something else entirely. Um, Do I sound sarcastic? Anyway, on that note, thank you so much for listening to another edition of Uprising Uncut. And I'll talk to you next week. I promise I won't skip next week. Bye.